0: This message was given at Campus Fellowship's 2021 Fall Conference. The theme of the conference was the five solas. CF director Eric Semgenau shares on Christ Alone. We hope this is encouraging. All right, I wanna go through a thought experiment with you guys. The thought experiment is you punching somebody in the face. So you punch somebody in the face and I want you to imagine what would the consequences be of punching that person in the face? This is kind of violent, sorry it's so violent. But, <laughs> so I'm gonna go through a list and you tell me, you go in your mind. What is the consequence of that? So what if you punched a stranger in the face? What would be the consequence of that? What if you punched one of your friends in the face? What would the consequences be? What if you punched one of your siblings? Maybe that would be actually the most likely one to happen. What if you had the audacity to punch your dad in the face? Yeah, yeah, you know, play no games. (laughs) Getting ready for a whooping is what you're getting ready for. I hate to even suggest this, but what what if you punched your mom in the face? It's like not even a thought. That's not even like, okay, why am I even saying that? Or a spouse, or a kid. This is horrible. What if you punched the president of the United States in the face? What would the consequences be of that? Okay, yeah, I should've seen that one coming. <laughs> Let's not do that. <laughs> oh my gosh. The idea behind all of this is that the action remains the same. In every one of these things, you're just punching somebody in the face, yet you know that the consequences are not the same, because there's a different weight in who you're punching in the face. So what we all recognize is that there's a differing level of consequence, not based on the action that we take sometimes, but more so based on who it's against. So if you were to take that principle and apply it, to God, the most holy God. And I don't know if this metaphor works, but what if you punched God in the face? What would be what would be the consequences of that? It would be devastating. Devastating consequences because you've gone against the most powerful person ever. <laughs> so the inverse of this is also true. The consequences grow based on who you sin against. But the inverse of this is also true. So imagine that those consequences were overlooked or forgiven. You would feel off the hook to a bigger degree based on who you're, based on who, uh, based on what the consequences really are. So Luke seven forty-seven says he who is forgiven little loves little. And at the same time, he who is forgiven much loves much. So, my hope tonight is that everybody in this room would recognize the weight of our sin, the weight of your sin against God. And that in response to that, the direct result would be an increased love for Jesus Christ who forgives us. So, Um, I gotta give you guys a little bit of background. Jake gave a little background on the five solas, but let me give you a little bit of history here. Uh, So we're gonna go back in time to the 1500s during the Reformation period. Um, Sola, what sola means is alone. Hence, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone for the glory of God alone. Those are the five things we're gonna talk about. Um, But why those five things? Why are those things, why are those topics a thing? Well, basically, uh, if you were to really look back at the history of the church and go back in time, this would take an entire conference in itself to just try and even pick apart like the Reformation um, and why it came about, but to give you a really simplified version of it, the Catholic Church in Rome had a really confusing view of salvation. And there was a lot of fog, and the waters were very muddy, and people couldn't even really read the Bible for themselves because it was in Latin, and nobody actually spoke Latin. <clears throat> uh, so they were teaching that salvation came uh, from a combination of faith and then something else. So it works. They were, teaching, um, they were teaching that uh, you had to get baptized, you ha- absolutely had to be baptized, you, that salvation was achieved through baptism. They were teaching that salvation was achieved through taking uh, the, Lord's si- the Lord's Supper um, consistently, that that was actually saving you. Um, and on top of that, they actually had this belief, they have this entire doctrine called purgatory. You've probably heard of purgatory. It's not a real thing. Uh, But the Catholic Church had this idea that purgatory, um, basically that Jesus' blood was not enough to pay for your sins fully, and that you had to do some time after you died in purgatory in order to get yourself cleaned up and ready for heaven, to be accepted into heaven. Well, that's not a real thing. And uh, in light of this, there was even some, some things that the church was doing, they were uh, calling people to actually give them money, saying that if they gave money to the church, it would lessen their time in purgatory. It would lessen their punishment. And not only that, they could do that for their friends, they could do that for their, for their family members who had passed away. Um, these were called indulgences. So obviously things, are, things were really messed up. And eventually it got to the point where people like Martin Luther, uh, had kind of had enough, and the early reformers, they started a correction of all these false teachings trying to nail down what does scripture really say? What is the gospel really about? And that's what these five solas are about. They're a celebration of the gospel itself. Um, and though it, though it caused division, these reformers will, were willing to die for what they were teaching and claiming. So this is, this, is a really, this is a really big deal, what we're teaching this weekend. And I hope that it, you guys are able to, to sink, let it sink in and guard you against false teaching. That's one of the reasons we want to talk about it. Uh, so we're, what I'm going to go through tonight is the ruin of mankind, the rescue of mankind, the representative of mankind, and the reign of mankind going through Romans, spend a lot of time in Romans. Romans five, we're gonna call it home, but we're hopping all over the place. So before we even get into that, I gotta give you some background, because in order to establish what Paul is trying to get at here, you have to go back to page one in your Bible. Uh, So creation and the fall. This is necessary background information. So in the beginning, what happened? God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, Everything was good, he spoke all things into existence, and then what does he do? He actually gets down and he forms with his hand, with his hands, out of the dust, he forms mankind, the first thing he ever touched. And he made mankind in his own image to represent him in his creation. And he said it was very good. And said so what you had was total peace, total harmony between God, man, and all of creation. And so one day, mankind, Adam and Eve, uh, they were presented with a temptation to sin. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one tree out of all the trees uh, that they were not supposed to eat from. And they're presented with the temptation to sin. And they end up going against God's command and eating that fruit. They chose to rebel against his beautiful design. And by by eating that fruit, Adam was committing treason against against God, who loved him and made him in his own image. And the results of that sin are beyond catastrophic. Uh, You have damaged relationships, cursed relationships, uh, between uh, man and woman, which we've all experienced that, humanity and creation, Literally humanity within nature, in animals, and our creation itself, there's a divide there that wasn't there initially. And then most extreme is humanity and God. Our relationship with God was severed in the garden, and we were separated from him. And ever since then, we as humanity have been struggling with everything we've got through life, uh, knowing that something is wrong, and desperately clawing to seek a solution, to find whatever it is. And as you read, as you keep turning the pages in your Bible, keep reading, in the Old Testament, you get little hints, you get promises from God that say he's going to do this. He's going to bring about reconciliation. He's going to bring man and God back together. And you see him choose a nation, and you think "God's God's choosing this nation to fix the problem. But what you see is they trip and fall on their face and they and they fail, time and time and time again. And you see, God chooses individuals. You see, maybe just individuals uh, could be the be the solution. And they do the same thing. They mess up. You see, nobody is good enough. And the reason is because they're of their father, Adam. See, they've descended from Adam and inherited something called original sin. They've inherited the sin of their father because they're his physical descendants. And so what we're stuck with is years, thousands of years of God telling his people that he's going to to solve this problem. And here we are, I think time keeps ticking, and the problem seems like more and more hopeless as we go. But that hopeless sense, that hopeless picture is exactly what was needed, it's exactly what was necessary to set the stage for Jesus Christ to walk in. So that's kind of like Old Testament summary, way overview, Um, but Jesus Christ shows up. So let's look at our text, let's look at our text. Uh, Romans 5 verse 12 says this, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned, all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world uh, before the law was given, but sin, can, sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. So here's a question, I kind of already gave this away, but is mankind inherently good or inherently bad? I think the answer depends on the standard that you use. Depends on the standard. You see, if you're posed with that question and your objective is to find any possible way to say or justify that mankind is good, you could probably make a case. But what you're gonna be forced to do in making that case is looking side to side to the people around you and trying to make a case to say, I'm better than that person, I think or the typical, well, like I'm not Hitler, so therefore, I'm a good person. I don't commit genocide. So if our standard is just comparing to the people around us, you might be able to trick yourself into thinking you're a good person. But the Bible doesn't work like that. The Bible defines things differently because it uses a different standard. And the standard of goodness that the Bible uses is perfection. Holiness, unstained. You see, uh, in the Bible, good and bad is not defined on a spectrum. It's very black and white. You are either good because you are perfect, or you are bad because you are imperfect. It only takes one sin. It only took one sin to literally ruin all of humanity in the entire creation. That's all it took from Adam. And that's all it takes for you. Um, So this brings us to original sin, which I want to talk about a little bit more. See, Adam was imperfect because he sinned. Uh, And you might say that's unfair. Uh, Adam sinned, not me. Why would I be grouped in with him when he's the one who screwed up? I mean, how many people have you heard joke around about, uh, stupid Eve, stupid Adam, why'd you do that? You screwed up everything else for us. But it's just, not, it's just not true, it's not really understanding what's going on inside our own hearts. It's because we do the same thing that Adam did every day. And if you were in the same circumstances that he was in, I guarantee you, you, would, you would fail the test as well. And I say you, you, you. But myself, I am totally included in this. All of us would fail that test, and all of us are descended from this man. Let's look at Romans 3. Paul has some more things to say. Romans 3, 10 through 18 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul desperately wants us to understand the reality that we're in He does not want to pull any punches, and he doesn't right here. He pulls no punches. And in this this passage, we see a condemnation of humanity that is both universal and pervasive. Uh, It's universal because it applies to everybody without exception. Everyone in this room, what I just read applies to you. That's devastating, I'm sorry, <laughs> it applies to me as well. It's pervasive because no, not a single part of our humanity escapes what was just said. If you look at that verse, he, he includes the lips, the throat, the mouth, feet, eyes, and what you see is a picture of our entire being being a tool of depravity. Our whole being is corrupt because of sin. And still, our instinct is to look within uh, to find this antidote to the sin problem. So we look within, we say, you, you wrestle with it. You say, Yeah, I know I need grace and I know I need Christ. But surely there's something in me that God sees that makes me kind of like at least a little bit worthy. Like there's something in me that God sees and wants to. And, and gives me favor with him. And as sad as it is, it's, that's just not true. It's not true. <clears throat> Sorry for the depressing message, guys. <laughs> we must come to terms with the fact that we're not worthy. We cannot save ourselves. So here's a principle for you guys. A proper understanding of sin is prerequisite to a proper understanding of our Savior. For good news to be good, you have to, you have to understand the bad news first. And this is really true in my life. I was a church kid. I was the youth group kid, you know, like every week I'm there. Um, didn't really think of, about what was being told. I, I knew all the stories. Probably can relate to a lot of people in this room. But somehow along the way, what happened to me is God I don't know why and I don't know how, but God showed me a lot of grace in that one day, sin, this this realization of sin, it just hit me like a freight train. I had been in the church my whole life and I had always heard that Jesus died for my sins, but that didn't mean squat to me until I understood that sin was actually a big deal. You say I went to church and I thought that made me a Christian, Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. Being at this conference doesn't make you a Christian. You have to to know Jesus. Um, And so what happened for me is the gospel started to actually click for me when sin started to click for me. Which brings me to the good news. This is the good news. So that's the ruin of mankind, but now we're gonna talk about the rescue, the rescue of mankind. See, uh, Romans 3, 23, if you keep reading a few verses later, it sums up what we've talked about so far. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, let's go into a, imagine a courtroom scenario. You are standing in uh, on trial, you're on trial, in the courtroom, and everything that's been presented against you is, has been totally devastating. And un, undoubtedly, without, without a doubt, you are going to be condemned as guilty. And you've heard a, a heavenly declaration of your own guilty status before the divine judge. Just sit in that for a second. God would be right to cast you out. He's right, he's righteous, he's holy, he's good. But Paul comes in, running in with this next verse, into the courtroom with the greatest of news. So let's continue, verse 23. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. You see, the antidote to our sin problem does not come from just looking deep within and trying to solve our own problems. The antidote to our sin problem comes from outside of ourselves, and it comes from a man, and it comes from Jesus Christ, who lived a righteous life that you could not. So what is it? I know I, what I just read is that no one is righteous, not even one. Yet, here I am also saying that, well, Jesus was righteous, so there, I guess there was one. So what makes Jesus different? Why is, why is he different? You see, this is actually a really significant piece of theology, is that Jesus is not from Adam. Jesus is born of a virgin, and he is God incarnate. He's God incarnate, he's the eternal son of God who's come into this world, entered into this world, took on flesh to hunt down and destroy death itself. That's why he came. And so in him, that's where our righteousness is found. It's not found from us just trying really hard. It's found in his finished work. Which brings us to the next point, which is the representative of mankind. We're getting into the thick stuff here, the dense part. The representative of mankind. I'm going to take you through something called Uh, The great exchange is posed by this question. Who will represent you as you stand before God on Judgment Day? Who will represent you as you stand before God on Judgment Day? You have two options, basically. You have Adam or you have Jesus. I want to make this as simple and clear as possible. You are either in Adam or you, are either, or you are in Jesus. See, Adam and Jesus both fit this unique role as a representative head of mankind. Adam, because he was first, and everybody's descended from him, and Jesus, because he was righteous and actually achieved something um, beyond what we could achieve. Um, there's a flip side to the great exchange as well, though. You see, it's not enough to just be forgiven. It's not enough to just be forgiven. Because if only the penalty is paid, then yes, our robes of guilt have been removed, and praise God. But we still stand naked before the throne. We need new clothes. Have you ever, thought, have you ever wondered why Jesus had to actually live out like a full life? here on earth. He came down here and he lived for 33 years. Um, have you ever wondered that? Why did he have to live a whole life? Why couldn't he have done it in some other way? It just kind of begs the question. Was there another way? Why did it happen this way? Well, what he, he had a mission. He had a mission when he came here. He needed to accompl- He needed to succeed where Adam failed. to achieve righteousness he had to succeed for the sake of humanity where humanity had previously failed. He needed to turn in a resume at the end of his life that demonstrated righteousness in the midst of brokenness. Um, so I actually have, I have a, a, a chart, a side-by-side chart here with that compares Jesus and Adam. Um, just want to go through that real quick. if we have it. Or not, let's see. Well, we'll come back to it if we need to. Um, but basically, let me describe it for you, I guess. So, Adam, on one side. Uh, Adam, in Genesis 1-3, through 3, that's basically our account of Adam. Uh, and Jesus, In Matthew, I'm just looking at Matthew, Matthew 4 and Matthew 26, there are some really strong parallels drawn between Jesus and Adam. Um, And so Adam, what you see in the garden uh, is that he is going through his test uh, within a perfect creation where Jesus is going through his test on a fallen creation, within a fallen creation. Adam, you see that he named the animals, he had a harmony with, with creation itself. There's, um, there's peace with him in creation. Jesus, it mentions wild animals around him when he's going and being tested right before he starts his public ministry where he goes for 40 days, um, of prayer and fasting. Adam was going through this in the Garden of Eden which literally had the tree of life and God, God's presence himself. Uh, and Jesus was going through this in the wilderness. Adam was well fed. Jesus was starving and on the brink of death. Adam had a sinless companion, so not only, not only was he not alone, but his companion was also sinless and perfect. Jesus was alone. Adam was just tested once. Jesus uh, was tested before his public ministry, but he, he was tested again in another garden right before he went to the cross. And what you see is that Adam sinned, all these things working in his favor, and yet he still failed. And that's, that's us. we failed. <clears throat> But what you see is that everything working against him, Jesus still obeyed. He succeeded where Adam failed. And even afterwards, what you see in Adam is he betrays and blames his wife. And he even blames God. What you see with Jesus uh, is that he was betrayed by one of his closest friends and pretty much abandoned by everybody else. And what this resulted in, Adam's sin, resulted in death for many. But Jesus' success resulted in life for many. So by default, we are, we are born into Adam, and we stand guilty before God. Um, but Jesus offers us his life and his righteousness. In exchange for our sin and death, so we give him our sin. And in exchange for that, he gives life and righteousness. It's like not an equal trade. I'll take all your bad stuff and give you all my good stuff. <clears throat> Doesn't make sense. See, God, he, he gives us forgiveness, and he takes off the robes of our guilt. But it even goes beyond that, and he shows us grace, which is unmerited favor. and he puts on the robe of Christ's righteousness. So uh, let's keep reading verses 15 to 16. uh, If you wanna follow along with me. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So what we see is Adam, he sinned once, and the result was bringing condemnation for many and bringing death for many. Sucks. Uh, Jesus he died once and gives us a gift of grace and what he achieves is that he brings justification justification is another way of saying not guilty your verdict is not guilty before God he brings that for all of our sins and he also brings life for many people so he did away with death and he actually restored what had been destroyed verse 17 let's keep going For if because of that one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and free gift of righteousness reign through life, reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. This is crazy. Jesus gives us far more than what we have lost in Adam. And say that again. Jesus gives us far more than we've lost in Adam. You see, the gift that we're given in Jesus Christ goes beyond forgiveness. It goes beyond just bringing us back to like the point where we were before Adam sinned. It's beyond restoration. This is a crazy thought, guys. Um, It's grace. It actually puts us in a position to know and understand God better than if we had never sinned to begin with. Because Jesus died for us and offers us his righteousness, we can actually know God more deeply than ever before. Because we're grafted in with him. He offers us his righteousness. And we're adopted in as sons and daughters. So what you see is that in response to our sin, and this is the craziness of grace, we give we give God our sin, we give Christ our sin, and in response to that, he brings us closer to God than ever. The gospel is so good. Okay, verse 18, let's keep going. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of, for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification, and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Disobedience. Adam's disobedience is our disobedience. Let's say that again. Adam's disobedience is our disobedience. But what exactly was Adam's disobedience? What exactly did he do that you would define as sin? Sure, the command was, don't eat of that fruit. That seems kind of like random and arbitrary. You see, it's when Adam is actually presented with the real temptation. He's presented with a knowledge that eating of this fruit would make him like God. And so that's what really got his gears turning. That's where he fell. And he very literally grasped for equality with God. He grasps for equality with God. And this is exactly what we do every time we sin. We want the throne. We wanna be in charge of everything. We wanna be able to define good and evil for ourselves. We wanna just be in charge, and not submit ourselves to anything else. We want the throne. We don't wanna give it up and we'll, we'll do anything to keep it. But Jesus, in contrast, if you guys know Philippians 2, says this, who though he was in the form of God, he was actually God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born into the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, like a criminal. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus completely humbled himself, and what we see is that the one innocent man who has ever walked on this earth died a criminal's death because we couldn't handle it. We couldn't take it. We hated him. He died a criminal's death, and he did it because he loves you. And I don't just mean he loves you when you're, like, going to church and doing good things. He loves you in whatever that, whatever your darkest moment was, or is, maybe it was today, where you are so ashamed, Jesus sees that, and he says, yes, I still love you. You see, Jesus didn't didn't come to improve good people's lives. Jesus came to resurrect the dead. So on the one hand, what you have is that you see the greatness of our ruin in Adam. But in Christ, the gift that he gives far exceeds our ruin and results in our rescue. The gift far exceeds our ruin and results in our rescue. Which brings us to the reign of mankind. Verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, Abounding. The definition of abounding is existing in or providing a great or plentiful quantity or supply. So abounding basically gives this picture of overflowing um, beyond, beyond enough. And if you look at this, if you look at this verse, what it says is uh, the law came into increase the trespass, uh, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so what you see is that he's adding all the more on top of abounding, which already implies overflow. So it's like he's trying to say super abounding. It's not just overflowing. It's like beyond overflowing. It's like a geyser. It's like shooting out. Um, and that is the picture of grace. It's beyond abounding. And so for the rest of our lives, this is going to be our walk. This is going to be our walk with Christ for the rest of our lives, guys. It's not, not just for a year here in college or even four years here in college. I want you guys to have a far greater picture of what this whole following Jesus thing is about. It is about 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, when you're an old man or an old woman still walking with Christ. It is not a given. But for the rest of your life, as you walk with him, you will just dig deeper and deeper and it will be revealed to you how sinful you really are and you think you're bad right now. You think you're bad. You just don't even, you don't even have a clue how deep it really goes. And this is, this is the truth. And that's like a really hard thing. That's gonna be our whole life's journey is discovering deeper and deeper and deeper. But what happens as we do this is that Jesus, his grace covers all of it. And the rest of our life is a journey of grace conquering the sin in our life. See, God, he wants you to be aware that you are in a deep, deep hole. And it's deeper than you know. Because he wants you to understand that you are deeply, deeply in need of a savior. You cannot climb out of this hole on your own. Here's a principle. Grace is always more abundant than sin. Praise God. Grace is always more abundant than sin. I got another chart for you. I hope this one works. See, though. Um, Yes, perfect. Okay, this used to be in part of our gospel class, but for copyright issues, we had to remove it. Anyway. This, this chart is awesome. I think it's really, really helpful and describes what I was just, des- um, it, it visualizes what I was just describing. But the idea of it, as time goes on, as you keep walking with Christ, you are going to grow in multiple areas. You're going to grow in your awareness of God's holiness. You're going to understand just how good he is. How good he is right now, you might think he's good, but he is so much better than what you think right now you're also gonna have a growing awareness of your sinfulness. And what happens as you go is that you will recognize that the gap between you and God, what what you thought was a big deal, is actually infinitely a bigger deal than what you thought. Your sin has infinite and eternal consequences. But, It makes the cross that much bigger. When you realize that your sin is great, you realize that the cross is great. You realize that Jesus went on that cross, and forgiving your sin is worth every ounce of your life. Not just an hour a week. Every ounce of your life. And on top of all that, I just want to add that there is no such thing some of you guys might be thinking this right now that there is no such thing as too far gone you are never out of God's reach and he is actually with you right now waiting waiting for you uh, to respond to him and if you guys are on the fence about following Jesus, giving your life to this do it do it Just decide to walk with Christ. He will help you as you go. You will grow. You do not have to clean yourself up first. You do not have to meet him halfway. He sees you in your darkest moment and he loved you there and he loves you right now. So I just wanna urge you guys to be ready to do that, ready to make that decision. And really, if, if that's where you're at this weekend, I really want you guys to just consider what that would look like. There are plenty of people to talk to about it. Um, on top of all of this, what I also want to paint a picture of for you guys is this idea. Um, I think a lot of us have an idea that this book, the Bible, this, this book that generally sits in most Christians houses collecting dust. Um, if you grew up in church, you probably learned story after story after story, or Veggie Tales, maybe Veggie Tales was um, better. Well, what you'll learn is moral lesson after moral lesson, and you think of these things in little, like kind of like you would think of a nursery rhyme book, that these are like different stories to teach me little lessons. Um, but it's not, this is a, this is a story. And it's not just a story, it's like reality, it's history, it's truth. And just like any good story, it has plot, it has conflict, it has rising actions, it has a climax, has a resolution. And if you open it up in Genesis and start reading all the way through to the end in Revelation, you'll see that there's one storyline. And it's Jesus. It's Jesus the whole way, guys. <clears throat> the, the, more, the, yeah, the more time you'll spend in the Word of God, the more you will realize that God wants you to understand just one thing very clearly. And it's Jesus Christ. See, everything that's written before Jesus shows up, everything that's written is just trying to prepare you for when he does show up. Everything that's written after he shows up is just trying to point you back and remind you of who this guy was. Jesus. I wanna read you guys an excerpt from a book that I found incredibly helpful in my life. Um, It's from Tim Keller, surprise, surprise, um, in his book Preaching, very creative name, but, (laughs) This is is getting at the point that I was just trying to describe. So I'm just going to read it to you. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out for our acquittal, not our condemnation. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing whither he went, to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. God said to Abraham, Now I know you love me, Because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. And now we can say to God, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled with God and took the blow of justice that we deserved so that we, like Jacob receive only the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the King, who at the right hand of the King forgives those who betrayed, uh, who betrayed and sold him, and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord, and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better better Esther, uh, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. And Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm, so we could be brought in. It's all about Jesus, the whole time. Everything is trying to point you there. See, he gave his life for you, and this whole thing, the whole Bible, is written so that you might know him. That's what God's word to you is for. And he does, it because he, he, he does it because he loves you and he wants you to know him. And it had to happen this way. It had to happen this way. There is no other way. There is no alternative road to God. Only through Jesus. Acts 4 11 and 12 says this This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So here's my application for you guys. Review the greatness of your ruin Oftentimes, any, the only thing we want to do is escape the, these thoughts. We want to numb the pain. We want to put in our headphones, listen to music or a podcast, or watch Netflix or do whatever we possibly can to avoid these thoughts. But I want to encourage you guys to dwell in these thoughts a little bit because these things are necessary in understanding what God's done for us. Review the greatness of your ruin. It also says, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble, the meek, for they are the ones who are going to see the kingdom of God. Don't let pride, don't let your silly pride get in the way of this. This is bigger than you. Review the greatness of your rescue. Rescue. The bigger the ruin, the bigger the rescue. This is so true. You see, his rescue is great enough not just to save you, but to save the, the entire, all of humanity, and all of our sins, past, present, and future. Jesus' blood is of infinite worth. And it pays an infinite cost. And then, the next two, this is to walk with Christ. Reflect. The first two is just basically reflect on the gospel. Reflect on the fact that God loves you, and then walk with Christ, knowing his love for you. He has you in his arms, and you can keep going because of that. And if that is not enough, then go back to step one. Repeat. Literally the rest of your life, just repeat these things every day. I'm going to pray. Father, how, how great, how great are you? You are so amazing. I pray that people's understanding of the gospel would grow exponentially this weekend. That our hearts would be ready to, to receive you. That our hearts would be ready to just understand your love. And I, just, I ask that you would save people this weekend, Lord. Um, and that you would be exalted greatly in, in all of our hearts. That this would be an awesome and fun weekend. Yes, Lord. But I pray that you would truly actually be at the center of it. And not just collectively, but for everybody in here. That you would be at the center of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you found this encouraging, we hope you'll subscribe or follow for more content. Or go to our website, campusfellowship.com, for other resources. Campus Fellowship is a student organization whose goal is to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. Thanks for listening.